Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Well, hello again and welcome back. I'm Nurse Mo and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. Before we dive into today's topic, which is all about splenectomy, let's take a quick minute for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to Damien, who says this. I've been listening to Nurse Mo since the beginning of my nursing program. I am now in my last semester of nursing school, and I cannot express how grateful I am for Nurse Mo and her podcasts and Crucial Concepts Boot Camp. I listen to her podcast nearly every day, and she has provided me with so much knowledge that will help me now and in my future career as a nurse. Thank you so very much for taking time to submit that feedback and your experience with the podcast and boot camp and all the things. Damien, I wish you the very best of luck. All right. So are you ready to dive into splenectomy? So a splenectomy is a procedure in which the spleen is either partially or completely removed. And when we only remove part of the spleen, that's generally more common in children. Most of the time, your adult patient, they're getting a splenectomy, they're getting the whole thing taken out. And most of the time, the procedure is performed laparoscopically. It could be performed in what is called an open abdominal procedure, which is going to involve a much larger incision and a more extensive recovery. So why would someone need a splenectomy? Lots of reasons. So one of the reasons is that the spleen is the organ that is most at risk for injury in blunt abdominal traumas. About 25% of all splenectomies are due to traumatic splenic rupture, which, as you can imagine, puts the patient at very high risk for extensive internal bleeding. So about a quarter of the time, it's because of abdominal trauma. And then in about another 25% of the time, splenectomies are due to hypersplenism, which is an overactive spleen that causes excessive cell destruction. So patients with hypersplenism will typically have an enlarged spleen, which is called splenomegaly, and are at high risk for significant hemolysis or thrombocytopenia. So hypersplenism can be a consequence of many, many conditions such as liver disease, viral infections, cancers, tuberculosis, sickle cell disease, thalassemia, polycythemia vera, splenic vein thrombosis, 
Felty's syndrome and as a result of certain abdominal surgeries. So lots of reasons why someone could have splenomegaly. And then a rare cause or a rare reason for a splenectomy is something called wandering spleen. In this condition, the ligaments that anchored the spleen in place are actually not functioning correctly. They're ineffective. And this puts the spleen at risk for torsion, for risk for ischemia from that, and even infarct. And then occasionally, a patient will get a splenectomy when there is really no known cause for their splenomegaly. So in these cases, it's considered a diagnostic splenectomy. And most of the time when they do a diagnostic splenectomy, the diagnosis that they arrive at is that the patient has lymphoma or leukemia. So let's do a quick overview of the spleen. So the first thing to know about the spleen is that it is highly vascularized. So that's why when the spleen ruptures in, say, an abdominal trauma, the risk for bleeding is so extensive. So it's a highly vascularized organ. It's actually the largest lymphoid organ in the body, and it sits in the left upper quadrant of the abdomen. And in a healthy individual without any spleen trouble, it's about the size of their fist, about 12 centimeters in length. An enlarged spleen is going to be greater than 20 centimeters in length and weigh more than 1,000 grams, which is 2.2 pounds. So now let's talk a bit about the role of the spleen. What does it do? So it filters blood and it plays a key role in immunity, which is why patients without a spleen are at such high risk for infection. So the spleen filters blood at a rate of approximately 150 mils per minute. It filters out old or damaged red blood cells. It removes bacteria and pathogens from the bloodstream. It produces antibodies. It produces mature B lymphocytes for humoral immunity. It detects antigens and initiates immune responses to antigens in the blood. And it produces macrophages that can detect and remove bacteria in the blood. So a lot of work of the spleen is about immunity. So now that you've got a little bit of an overview and understanding of the spleen, let's dive into the nursing care of a patient undergoing a splenectomy using the straight nursing latte method. Since you're already listening to this podcast, then you already understand the impact that audio learning has in nursing school. Well, now you can take it even further with Study Sesh. With over 120 lessons that include pod quizzes and drills, you'll free yourself from your desk without sacrificing valuable study time. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on courses in the upper menu bar. And then, with Study Sesh, you'll change the way you study. So that first letter in the latte method is an L for look. How will the patient look? Essentially, what are their signs and symptoms? So prior to surgery, the patient may have a distended abdomen if they have that splenomegaly, if that's the reason that they're getting the splenectomy. 
In cases of splenic rupture due to trauma, the patient may show signs such as pain and tenderness in that left upper quadrant. They may have referred pain to the left shoulder, lightheadedness, or confusion. And if it was really extensive and bleeding has already been occurring, you could see ecchymosis as well, along with abdominal distension. After surgery, after the splenectomy, the patient's essentially going to look the same as any other post-abdominal surgery patient, and this can include things like one or more dressings, and this will depend on whether the procedure was done laparoscopically or with one large incision. And sometimes you'll have both types of incisions with multiple dressings. So sometimes the surgeon may start out laparoscopically and then have to convert to an open kind of procedure. So you might see one big dressing and multiple small dressings. The patient may have a JP drain or a hemovac drain. They may have an abdominal binder in place if the procedure was open. That would tend to be more of a common reason for an abdominal binder. The patient will show signs of surgery-related pain, such as restlessness, guarding, grimacing, tachycardia, hypertension, and increased respiratory rate. In cases of trauma, the patient may have multiple other injuries and is often going to be in the intensive care unit. The patient will also have their basics like their SCDs, their sequential compression devices, and may be using a PCA to help control their pain. Generally, you're looking at a abdominal post-op patient. Now, with splenectomy, the patient could have complications. So some key signals that your patient may be experiencing a complication after this procedure include internal bleeding. So what might that look like? The patient may have increased pain, so pain that is bigger than expected for the type of surgery they had. An open procedure typically hurts more than a laparoscopic one, but let's say your patient has a lot of pain no matter how many opioids you're giving them in the post-op period. So increased pain, abdominal distension. They may even have a tense or rigid abdomen. They'd have that ecchymosis possibly, tachycardia, hemodynamic compromise, so blood pressure dropping, poor skin signs, and decreased level of consciousness. So those are some key signals that internal bleeding could be occurring. Another complication is a splenic or portal vein thrombosis. So the patient might complain of vague abdominal pain, decreased appetite, malaise, and nausea. With pancreatic injury, which can occur in about 15% of laparoscopic splenectomy procedures, the patient can have some pancreatic injury with that, which can lead to pancreatitis. So Signs of pancreatitis include severe upper or epigastric abdominal pain that may radiate to the back. They may have nausea, vomiting, pretty common with pancreatitis to have those, abdominal guarding or tenderness. And then two kind of classic signs you hear about in association with pancreatitis are Cullen's sign and Turner's sign. Colon sign is going to show as discoloration, kind of like an ecchymotic discoloration around the umbilical area, and then Turner sign is discoloration at that left flank. 
Deep vein thrombosis is another complication after splenectomy. Patients with splenectomy are at higher risk for a deep vein thrombosis or venous thromboembolism. And the patient with a DVT would have unilateral calf pain, redness, warmth, and edema or swelling. And then with that comes pulmonary embolism. So the signs that your patient could be suffering from a pulmonary embolism are sudden onset shortness of breath, chest pain, and specifically chest pain that's worse with inspiration, cough, that cough could have a little bit of blood in it called hemoptysis, dropping oxygen saturation levels. They may be restless or anxious as they're not getting enough oxygen. They could become lightheaded. If it's severe, they could have some cyanosis present. Look for that around the lips and the nail beds. And a lot of times on nursing school exams, and I think maybe also in real life, the patient will state a feeling of impending doom. So key tip, if your patient ever says, I feel like I'm going to die, that is not hyperbole. Pay very close attention to their clinical presentation if somebody ever, ever says that to you. All right, another complication that your patient could have post-splenectomy is something called OPSI, O-P-S-I, or overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. Any infection can become life-threatening if the patient does not have a spleen, because as you heard earlier, plays such a key role in the immune response. So signs of OPSI, which has a mortality rate of about 50 percent are essentially going to be signs of infection that progress to sepsis very quickly. All right, let's move on to the next letter in the latte method, which is A for assess. How do we assess a patient? So prior to surgery, one of the things to assess is the patient's vaccination status. Once the spleen is removed or even just partially removed, they will be at much higher risk for infection. It's also important to assess the patient's medication regimen prior to surgery by ensuring all current meds and doses are in the EMR, the electronic medical record, and verified by the patient. So asking the patient, are you still taking this medication? What dose are you taking? When did you last take it? All of those things. Some doses may need to be adjusted and some medications may need to be discontinued altogether, especially those that put the patient at risk for infection. So by looking at all those meds, getting in inside the EMR where the physician and the pharmacist can see them, the patient will then get their doses or their medications discontinued as needed. Now, after surgery, your key assessments are going to be monitoring your patient for, guess what? Signs of infection, which can be life-threatening. That is probably the most key assessments that you will be doing. A patient with that overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis can progress to a life-threatening septic state within 12 to 48 hours, so very, very quickly. So some general signs of infection include alterations in temperature. So a lot of times we just think elevated temperature, but also a lower than normal temperature could be a sign of infection. The patient having chills, the patient having tachycardia. And what's interesting here is that when you are looking at, say, your sepsis screening, which you would be doing for these patients as part of this assessment of infection and infection risk, one of the very first things is a heart rate above 90. Now, 
90, 91, 94. Technically, that's not tachycardia. So we call this like a mild tachycardia or an elevated heart rate. So even just that mild elevation can be associated with sepsis. So don't immediately blow it off as anxiety or pain. It requires further assessment in many cases. Now with that, we also have tachypnea. An elevated respiratory rate is one of the earliest warning signs of sepsis and sadly is often overlooked or also explained away as pain or anxiety. I believe that threshold that the studies were looking at when they saw tachypnea as an early indicator of sepsis was a rate around 24, which is not that elevated. So again, when your patient has tachypnea, when your patient has that mildly elevated heart rate, pay very, very close attention. Other signs of infection include malaise, overall body aches or muscle aches, The patient could have diarrhea if it's a GI-related infection. They could have vomiting. They may have abnormal labs, such as an elevated white count or a decreased white count. Again, it's not always elevated. The infection could use up white blood cells, leading to lower-than-normal levels. Other labs that are abnormal, especially in sepsis, include things like glucose, which is often elevated. And when organ dysfunction is present, you'll see things like elevated creatinine, elevated bilirubin, all kinds of things like that. So abnormal labs, pay very close attention to those. You also want to be keeping a very close eye on that incision site, any purulent drainage from the incision site or signs of warmth, erythema, edema, pain, things like that are going to be indicative of a localized infection. Some other key assessments for your post-surgical splenectomy patient include monitoring for signs of venous thromboembolism, or DVT, and signs of bleeding. Remember, the spleen is highly vascularized. And of course, you'll assess your patient's pain very carefully. Pain can simply be related to that surgical incision, or it could be due to a complication, like I mentioned earlier, such as internal bleeding, a thrombus of some kind, splenosis, and splenosis is when spleen tissue breaks off and implants in another location, or even something called a missed accessory spleen which is present in about 10 to 30% of people. I did not know this. I learned this while putting this episode together. 10 to 30% of people have something called an accessory spleen. So if you learned nothing else from this episode, you learned that. All right, let's move on to the next letter, which is a T, and that is for what tests are conducted. So prior to surgery, your patient will get a standard workup, including CBC with differential and coagulation labs to assess bleeding risk. Ultrasound or CT scan or both will be conducted to evaluate the organ's size, any abnormalities, the surrounding structures, and the presence of that accessory spleen. And then post-op, some common tests include hemoglobin and hematocrit to monitor for bleeding. And if the patient's especially high risk, they may do these in a series, like every six hours, every eight hours, daily, whatever it may be. The patient may also get a complete blood count to monitor for elevated or depleted white blood cells, which are, again, signs of infection. 
And interestingly, elevated leukocytes or platelets are signs of a potential thromboembolic complication. And thrombocytopenia, which is a low platelet count, is an early indicator of OPSI, or overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. An abdominal ultrasound or CT scan may be utilized to assess potential complications if they're suspected after surgery. And then when we suspect infection, the patient's going to get cultures. So this could be what's called a pan culture, where we take as many different types of cultures as we possibly can. If it's very specific and we know what type of infection the patient probably has, they may limit it to just that type. But here are the different cultures. We could do blood cultures, which would assess for a systemic infection. Wound cultures would, of course, look at that wound to assess for a localized infection. A urine culture would assess for a urinary tract infection or UTI. A sputum culture would be obtained if we think the patient has a pneumonia. And we can also culture catheter tips. So if the patient had a central line and we suspect a central line infection, the line is removed, that tip is clipped off, sent to the lab, and cultures. Now note that any type of infection can become systemic and life-threatening in a patient without a spleen. All right, moving on to the next letter, and the latte method is a T for treatments. What treatments are utilized for a patient undergoing a splenectomy? So one key thing is vaccines. Patients with a planned splenectomy will receive all the recommended vaccines about 10 to 12 weeks prior to surgery. That's the ideal time frame. But in some cases, we don't have that much time. They could be given two weeks prior, which could still allow some passive immunity to develop. Now, a lot of times, as you learned earlier, in about 25% of the cases, that's going to be a splenectomy due to abdominal trauma, which means we don't have time to give vaccines pre-op. We're going to give them about two weeks post-op, okay? All right, so then blood products. Prior to surgery, a lot of times patients may get platelets and packed red blood cells to reduce the risk of bleeding and hemodynamic compromise that could occur with the bleeding that is likely to happen during the surgery. The patient may also get IVIG, intravenous immune globulin. This is utilized to help increase platelet counts in those with immune thrombocytopenia, or ITP. Though not a blood product specifically, a thrombopoietin receptor antagonist may be used instead of IVIG when platelet counts are also low due to ITP. And then VTE prophylaxis or deep vein thrombosis prophylaxis, patients undergoing splenectomy are at higher risk for venous thromboembolism, so they're going to be wearing their scuds when they're in bed, not ambulating, and then they may also receive low molecular weight heparin. This would be done on a case-by-case basis because some patients are going to be higher risk for bleeding, so they may not want heparin in those patients. They may just use mechanical prophylaxis. So it just may depend on each individual patient. And when I say mechanical prophylaxis, if you've never heard that term before, that's what we mean when we're talking about those scuds because it's a mechanical device. It's an external device that's causing the blood flow. It's not a pharmacologic intervention. It's mechanical DVT prophylaxis. And then, of course, with any post-op patient, pain management. So options for pain management after splenectomy are going to include things like acetaminophen, 
opioids and blocks, which are placed by the anesthesiologist. Some patients will utilize patient-controlled analgesia, which is a PCA. NSAIDs probably typically avoided in the immediate post-op period due to heightened risk of bleeding. And then infection prevention, a key intervention with your patient who lacks a spleen. Patients will receive prophylactic antibiotics before and after surgery. Many patients may take prophylactic antibiotics daily for an extended period of time, while others may even need to take them for life. And it will depend on the individual patient's infection risk. And then some general nursing care-related things. Most of your interventions after this type of surgery are going to be aimed at doing what? Can you guess? (laughs) Preventing infection. Good job. We also want to increase mobility and we'll always be monitoring for complications. So we're going to be performing exquisite hand hygiene and making sure the patient is doing exquisite hand hygiene and anyone who walks into the room is doing exquisite hand hygiene. We'll change the dressings on schedule and anytime they're soiled, wet, or loose. We want to get the patient out of bed. Early ambulation is absolutely vital. A key way to do this is walking the patients as soon as we can after surgery and getting them out of bed for all meals. We will encourage use of the incentive spirometer. If the patient has an open procedure, this is going to be even more vitally important because deep breathing is likely to be really painful for them. So they're more likely to take those little shallow breaths that can lead to pneumonia. So getting in there and encouraging use of the incentive spirometer. You can encourage splinting by the patient when they're coughing or changing position. And an easy way to make an abdominal splint is to get one of the blankets that's all folded up, put it inside a pillowcase, and now they've got just like a soft but kind of dense splint that they can hold over their belly. You'll be managing drains by monitoring their output, draining them as needed, and reapplying compression so that they actually work. You'd be surprised how many times I find a drain with no compression on it. It's not really doing anything, though sometimes surgeons will order the drain to not have compression, but most of the time, if they're putting in a drain, they want it compressed. You can always double-check the drainage management orders in your order set after surgery. And then you'll have the scuds on the patient when they're non-ambulatory, when they're in bed. And if the patient is using a PCA, the protocol at many facilities is to also apply oxygen at about two liters nasal cannula or more if the patient needs it, and also putting the patient on continuous pulse oximetry monitoring. And this is because of the heightened risk for respiratory depression with use of patient-controlled analgesia. All right, the final letter in the latte method is E for educate. How do you educate the patient after a splenectomy? So what do you think the main focus of your teaching is going to be around? Hmm, probably infection prevention. Very good. So general infection prevention techniques are to avoid crowds, avoid being around people who are sick, performing excellent hand hygiene, staying current on vaccines, and even general food safety practices to avoid getting a foodborne illness. 
You also want to ensure your patient understands the signs of infection and when to seek medical attention since even a small infection can progress and become life-threatening, especially in the first three years after surgery. General things to watch for are fever and chills, a cold that lasts longer than expected, a sore throat, a cough, malaise, muscle aches, redness and tenderness anywhere in the body, especially wounds, painful urination or cloudy urine, vomiting and diarrhea. So all kinds of infection type signs and symptoms for your patient to watch for. You want to teach your patient that they will need to carry a high-dose antibiotic with them at all times in case signs of infection develop. This does not preclude their need to seek medical attention, so ensure your patient understands they must notify their physician or even seek emergent care when signs of infection are present. Teach your patient they may be prescribed prophylactic antibiotics for a period of time. For a lot of patients, this is about two to three years. It could even be for life, depending on the patient's individual infection risk. Other key teaching points include the patient should be advised to wear a medic alert bracelet or carry some kind of medic alert ID card that states they are asplenic or without a spleen. The patient should discuss travel plans with their physician, especially if they're planning to visit a country where the risk for malaria or parasitic infection is high. They should seek medical attention if they're scratched or bitten by an animal, even their own pet. And you want to encourage the patient to undergo all age-related cancer screenings since having a splenectomy may increase their risk of cancer. So there's your review on splenectomy. Now to give you a little taste of what my study sesh podcast is all about, which is mostly a lot of pod quizzes, which is where I ask a question, give you time to answer. It's a fantastic way to review. We're going to do a little pod quizzing here about splenectomy to test your understanding of this procedure in the patient's condition. So first question. In what part of the abdomen is the spleen? Hopefully you said the left upper quadrant. Very good. What are the two key functions or roles of the spleen that I mentioned? One was filtering blood and the other was immunity. Very, very good. You're doing absolutely fantastic. What is the medical term for an enlarged spleen? Splenomegaly. And what is most common reason that a patient would have a splenectomy? There were two that were kind of the two biggest reasons. What was the first one I mentioned? abdominal trauma. Where might the patient have referred pain with splenic rupture? The left shoulder. Very good. How quickly can an infection progress to life-threatening sepsis in OPSI or OPSI? 
we're looking at within 12 to 48 hours, so very, very quickly. When you're taking care of a patient after splenectomy, the main umbrella for your interventions are to do what? Prevent infection. Excellent. And last question, what might your patient have to take for years or for life after having their spleen removed? Prophylactic antibiotics. Excellent. So that's what a pod quiz is like. So if you think that would be a cool way to review material so that you can basically study without just sitting at your desk all the time, then I want you to check out Study Sesh. If you go to straightanursingstudent.com and you just click on courses in the top menu bar, it will take you to a page where you can easily find it. I'll also put the link in the episode notes. So there you have it, your brief overview to splenectomy. I hope you join me back here again next week where I'll be diving into periop clinicals and what those clinical experiences might be like so that you know what to expect. I'll see you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Nursing.